Well, it's good to see everyone's face again after uh, being gone for several weeks and out of the pulpit. Um, I really appreciate uh, Paul Kalkinen and Ben Abrahamson uh, opening up God's Word for you while I was gone. And um, I know that they will have other opportunities to minister the Word to you in the future as they continue to work through 1 Samuel. Uh, what, what a blessing. I was able to listen to their sermons and was encouraged So why don't we, though, turn to the book of Joshua as we're going to resume our series in this book and turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12, and we're going to just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. Remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's read together Joshua chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon. And from the middle of the valley, as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshemosh to the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtaroth and at Adrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah and all Bashan to the boundary of the Gesherites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, and in the Arabah, in the slopes and the wilderness, and in the Negev, and the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lashish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam one. The king of Makedah one. The king of Bethel one. The king of Tapua one. The king of Hefer one. The king of Aphek one. The king of Lasharon one. The king of Madon one. The king of Hazor one. The king of Shimron Meron one. The king of Akshaf one. The king of Tanakh one. The king of Megiddo one. The king of Kadesh one. The king of Jachnim and Carmel won. The king of Dor and Naphath Dor won. The king of Goim and Galilee won. The king of Tirzah won. In all, 31 kings. Amen. That's the reading of God's holy word. And let's 
go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon it. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you in your wisdom have given us all the scriptures contained in the Bible and that however tedious they might seem to us in our frailty and in our corruption, you in your wisdom have given them to us for a purpose. As the Apostle Paul said, all scripture is breathed by God and profitable. And we pray that you would help us to grasp the message and meaning of this text and to see how it ought to impact our thinking and our hearts this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the magnitude of an event is often not appreciated while that event is still in process. So those involved are too busy with the details to grasp the significance at times, of what is really going on. It isn't until you are able to step back and to survey the results that you can begin to feel the weight of what has happened. This can be true in a negative sense. Take, for instance, that terrible battle in World War I, often known as the Battle of the Somme or the Somme Offensive because it took place along the banks of the River Somme in France. More than three million soldiers fought in that battle, and about one million were killed or wounded. It was one of the deadliest battles of human history and tragically accomplished very little for the Allies. It has often been described since as a battle of mud, blood, and futility. But the true extent of the carnage could not have been fully appreciated in the midst of the battle. It wasn't until it was over and the soldiers came out of their trenches who had survived and looked out over the battlefield to see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers dead for as far as the eye could see. And the officers began to tally up the numbers of the casualties. It was only then that the enormity of what happened in that terrible event could be more fully grasped and comprehended. But the same principle is also true in a positive sense. Consider, for instance, the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, which spans the, a part of the San Francisco Bay. You know, at the time, in the early 1900s, many experts believed that a bridge could not be built there because of the depth of the water and, and the distance that they were trying to span, as well as the strong currents and the high winds and the impenetrable fog that would often plague that area. But they were all wrong. The bridge took five years to build. Construction began in 1933 and ended in 1937. And incredibly, especially in our day, it was completed under budget and ahead of schedule. But as you can imagine, it was a harrowing experience to participate in the construction of that bridge. Eleven men died from falls during the construction. Nineteen others were saved from death when they fell into the safety nets that were stretched under the bridge. They were humorously called the Halfway to Hell Club. 
But as these crews labored away day after day, hanging above the ocean in the wind and the fog, they could not have appreciated at the time the magnitude of what they were accomplishing. It wasn't until the bridge was completed and they were able to step back and observe the size and the beauty of what has become a national landmark that they were really able to appreciate the true scope of what they had accomplished. Now, there's a sense in which I want to argue that Joshua chapter 12 is intended to accomplish something similar with respect to the conquest of Canaan by the nation of Israel. So in chapters 1 through 11 of Joshua, we we saw how Israel conquered the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua and by the power of God. We saw it all unfold step by step. We watched as they spied out the land, as they crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground. We observed the dramatic victories over Jericho and over Ai. And then we read the stirring accounts of their campaigns through the southern part of Canaan and then the northern part of Canaan, each beginning with a resounding victory over a combined Canaanite army and then their subsequent defeat and overthrow of fortified city after fortified city after fortified city. But in the midst of these individual events, the reader could not appreciate the full scope of what was occurring. So here in Joshua chapter 12, the author enables us to step back and to see the big picture of Israel's conquest of Canaan so that we can understand and appreciate just how incredible of an event this really was. So let's walk through this chapter together so that we might feel the intended impact that it is to have upon us as the readers. It's interesting when you look at the chapter, you realize that the author actually didn't start where the book of Joshua started. He starts with the conquest of Canaan, uh, or he doesn't start with the conquest of Canaan, but with the conquest of the lands on the other side of the Jordan from Canaan, which Israel had previously conquered under Moses. So you might remember, as you think back about all the many times that you've read through the book of Numbers, you know those many times, and you think of the stories there and how toward the end of their 40-year wilderness wandering period, Moses began leading the nation of Israel uh, out of the Sinai desert and toward the land of Canaan, which they were going to conquer. But in order to do that, he had to pass through occupied territory, territory that was ruled by an Amorite king named Sihon. Now, Sihon was a great king with a vast territory, and he had many fiefdoms under his rule. And he had this territory that stretched from the Arnon River, which sort of flowed out of the middle of the Dead Sea, all the way up to the Jabbok River. And he had a massive uh, number of cities that he ruled over in that vast territory. 
Now, when Moses first approached Sihon's territory, he offered to pass through peacefully, if he would just let him pass through on his way to Canaan. But Sihon refused and instead led out his armies to attack the Israelites. So the Lord gave Israel victory over Sihon, and they conquered his army and took possession of all of his land. But there was another king, an even larger kingdom to the north of Sihon's, which was ruled by a king named Og. Uh, New parents, that's not a name you want to pick for your children, just as a side note. But the author of Joshua described Og as, quote, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, which from other places of scripture we know was that people group out of which came the Anakim, that ancient line of mighty warriors known for their great size, later called giants in the scripture. In fact, Moses actually had pointed out previously in the Pentateuch Og's great size. Deuteronomy 3.11, you might even remember this verse where it described Og's bed, that he had this gigantic bed of iron because he was so big he needed it to hold him. And when Og heard of Israel's conquest of Sihon's kingdom to his south, well, he led out his armies to attack Israel out of the north. But once again, the Lord gave victory to Israel and they defeated Og and they conquered all of the cities throughout his kingdom and took possession of his entire territory. Now, I want you to recognize not only were these two kings, great kings with vast kingdoms, but the territory that that Israel conquered here was massive. It was so vast, it was about a third as large as the entire land of Canaan. Now, the defeat of Sihon and Og, it was recorded first back in Numbers chapter 21, and then it's recapped in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. But the reason that the author of Joshua brought it up here was because of what is mentioned there in verse 6. There, It says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. In other words, after the people defeated the kingdoms of Sihon and Og, Moses had actually allotted their territory to two and a half tribes, to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and to half of the tribe of Manasseh. So that became part of Israelite territory. Scholars now call it the Transjordan region. If you were to look on a map today, you'd see the territory we're talking about is actually part of the country now called Jordan. And so this vast territory on the east side of the Jordan River, outside the land of Canaan proper, would become part of the nation of Israel. So because of these conquests, the promised land was expanded by over 30%. Now, after recounting how Israel conquered the kingdoms of Sihon and Og on the east side of the Jordan under the leadership of Moses, well, the author spent the rest of the chapter recounting how Israel conquered the kingdoms of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan, not under the leadership anymore of Moses, but now of Joshua. Now, the section there begins in verses 7 through 8 with this general description. 
And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. And then it lists the territory from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon in the far north to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir in the far south. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, in the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So here is the rest of the territory that God was giving to the nation of Israel as their inheritance, including the Transjordan region. So these, this description here emphasizes the totality of the territory that they took from the Canaanites. In other words, he's saying these are all the kings of all the people groups in all the land of Canaan whom the Israelites defeated under Joshua's leadership. And then you see in verses 9 through 24, um, there perhaps might even be a translation of the Bible that actually decides to list them in like a list because that's really what's happening. You're, you're given now a list of all the kings that Israel defeated throughout the land of Canaan by name, one by one. In fact, after the name of each king is the Hebrew word for one. And that's for the purposes of counting. You're supposed to count them up. So the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one, etc., etc. Now, as you look at the list of kings, you can see, actually, if you remember back to the stories in Joshua 1 through 11, well, the description of the kings is actually tracking with the stories laid out in chapters 6 through 11 in particular. So he began with the king of Jericho, which Israel defeated in chapter 6, and then he lists the king of Ai, which Israel defeated in chapter 8, and then he lists the kings in the cities in the southern part of Canaan, which Israel conquered in chapter 10, and then he lists the kings in the northern part of Canaan, which Israel conquered in chapter 11. It is interesting to see, though, that upon closer inspection, when you go back and compare the stories with the list, you realize that some of the names in the list are not in the previous stories. And what that means is simply that the stories were not comprehensive. They were selective They weren't telling you everything about the conquest. They're just hitting the high points. But here in chapter 12, it's important to be comprehensive. And so the author gives you all the names of all the kings in all the land of Canaan that Israel defeated under Joshua. And then finally, you see in verse 31, the author tells you the total number of the kings in the list. He says, in all, 31 kings. Now, You're not supposed to read that with a straight face. You're supposed to read that going, 31 kings. It's amazing, isn't it? So here the author is enabling us as the readers to step back, to survey what Israel had accomplished. So in the midst of five years of hard fighting that it required to get there, Israel might not have grasped fully what was happening. And as we read the individual stories of the various battles, it would be difficult for us to appreciate it as well as we're going along. But here, looking down, as it were, from a a lofty vantage point in Joshua 12, 
we can see the big picture now of Israel's conquest of Canaan. And it is truly incredible. They had conquered two great kings and taken possession of their vast territories on the east side of the Jordan. They had conquered 31 kings of 31 cities, many of them great fortified cities, and taken possession of the entire land of Canaan west of the Jordan River. And don't forget, okay, we're not talking about some great imperial power here. It wasn't as if the Egyptians came up or the Assyrians came down or the Babylonians came over and defeated all these kings with their crack armies and captured all these territories. No, this was the nation of Israel. This was a basically Bedouin people who had been wandering the desert in Saudi Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia, in tents for the last 40 years. They had no professional army, no horses and chariots, no storehouses of weapons, no great war machines or siege works. I mean, you can imagine, for the most part, they are, their army consists of average Israelite citizens with minimal military training or experience and meager and rudimentary weapons who fought mostly on foot. In fact, you remember that God wanted it that way. He says, when you capture horses, hamstring them. When you capture those chariots, burn them. And yet they had faced down 33 kings, many of them great kings, who ruled over many other kings under them, with far superior armies. And after routing them on the battlefield, they went and overthrew their fortified cities, one after another. So, when you stand on the summit of Joshua chapter 12, and you survey everything that Israel had accomplished under Moses first, and then under Joshua, and their conquest of the Transjordan region, and of Canaan proper, that's enough to just take your breath away. It was truly a remarkable event, which in many ways just defied human explanation. So, we've walked through the chapter, we felt something of its intended impact. Now let's just consider, what is it supposed to mean for us who read it today? Well, I've already mentioned, Joshua... 12 is intended to make a step back and survey the result of Israel's conquest of Canaan and the Transjordan. In other words, this entire territory that God was giving to them as an inheritance so that the reader can really begin to grasp the significance of what has happened here. And in general, we who read this chapter are supposed to be struck with amazement that a single Bedouin nation have been able to conquer 33 kings, many of whom were quite powerful, and capture all their vast territories. But it's important to be more specific about what this extraordinary event is supposed to teach us as readers. You know, of course, it would be an absolute travesty if you read this chapter and you gave the credit for this event to Israel or even to Joshua. 
Anyone who has read the story of Israel's conquest of Canaan or of Moses' conquest of the Transjordan region knows that the credit for these remarkable events belonged entirely to God. And so as our eyes travel down the list of these kings, and we're meant to read them one by one by one by one, so that as you, by the time you get to the end, you're amazed. As you do that, you are meant to learn things about God. And I just want to point out at least two things that this chapter should remind us about the God who accomplished this incredible event. First, it should remind us of God's faithfulness, his being true to his word, his doing everything that he has said, his faithfulness. You know, about eight centuries earlier, just think about that, 800 years earlier, that's, you know, a little less than three times the history of our country. 800 years earlier, God had made a promise to a man named Abram living in a Chaldean city called Ur. And according to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he had said to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And this man from Ur left his home country with his extended family and eventually traveled through this land of Canaan. And in verse 7, it says that when they got there, the Lord spoke again to this man, Abram, and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, at the time, that seemed preposterous and impossible, not only because Abram's just one guy. But because also his wife had been barren for many years, he didn't have any children. But now we see, 800 years later, eight centuries later, long after Abraham is is dead and gone, we see in Joshua 12 that God had kept his word. He had done exactly what he promised to do. He had made Abram, into a great nation, the nation of Israel, and he had given the land of Canaan to his offspring. You see, in this way, that list of kings whom Israel had defeated and the description of all the territories which Israel had come to possess was a ringing testimony to the incredible faithfulness of God. He had been ordering all the events of human history and intervening directly, as with the Exodus, many times along the way to bring about exactly what he had promised to that single man from Ur so long ago. You know, surely the psalmist was correct when he said in Psalm 36, verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. In other words, the faithfulness of God is as limitless and perfect as his divine nature. He never fails to do what he promises. He is perfectly reliable. Consider what this means for us. 
Because the God of Abraham and of Israel is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God. And his character hasn't changed. His his faithfulness remains the same. It is still perfect. And he will never fail us, even as he did not fail that man from earth so long ago. God will do for us everything that he has promised. So, for instance, we have his promise in Romans 10.13 that Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or again, John 3.16, we know so familiarly, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, you boys and girls, have you ever called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Have you believed in him that you might have everlasting life? then you should trust him to keep his promise rather than wondering whether he's really done it. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Or again, in Jeremiah 31, 34, we remember the Lord promised this regarding his new covenant people. That's us. He said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Maybe you're a believer here this morning and you've committed some dreadful sins that really haunt you almost every day of your life. Have you put your trust in Christ so that you now belong to his new covenant people, then you should put your faith in Jesus that he has kept his promise to you. He has been faithful to forgive you of all your sins, no matter how terrible they are. And they are he's no longer holding them against you. As far as the east is to the west, he says. So far have I removed your transgressions from you. And you see, so we should trust God to keep every promise that he has made to us in Scripture as his new covenant people, because as Joshua 12 has reminded us, God is perfectly, unbelievably faithful. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, Let me say to you that this theme of God's faithfulness applies to you as well. Because you see, in the Bible, God tells us the truth about himself, about us, about the world, about the future. Now, we may not like what the Bible says because the truth often hurts, but it is necessary, isn't it? It's like going to the doctor getting a diagnosis that you don't like. But you need to hear it. Well, the same is true with Scripture. Without the truth, we have no hope. And, and the truth that the Bible tells us, which, by the way, is also empirically obvious, is that we are creatures of God. He's made us. But we have fallen into sin, every one of us. So that corruption, unbeliever, that you see in your heart 
and your life, even though you like to suppress the truth about it, but you know it's there, it's called sin. And the problem with our sin is not just that it leaves us feeling ashamed, but that it makes us objectively guilty before the holy God who made us and who is our judge. And the Bible tells us this sober truth that a day is coming when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and of his son Jesus Christ to give an account for our lives, for what we did in the body, and that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal destruction in hell. But the Bible also announces to us this wonderful news, this gospel, that God, the God who made us, to whom we are accountable, is a gracious God of perfect mercy. And he has decided to save sinners, every sinner who will repent before him. And so in love he has sent the eternal person of his divine son, to enter into the world, to take on human flesh, and to do what is necessary to save sinful human beings like us. He has lived a perfect human life where we have failed on our behalf, and then he took the penalty that we deserve for our sins in our place when he died on the cross at Calvary. And now he has sent out through by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand, he has sent out the message of good news. Whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a promise. It's a promise to you, unbeliever, that if you will believe in Jesus, you can trust that he will be faithful to save you and to give you eternal life. So I would call you, if, you're, if you haven't done so already, believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, and you will be rescued from your sins today. But second, Joshua 12 reminds us of God's power. You know, as I mentioned before, the event that's described in this chapter, it really defies human explanation. I mean, it's like the little shepherd boy, David, killing the seasoned soldier and giant Goliath in single combat using nothing but a slingshot. Well, so also Israel's conquest of 33 kings, many of whom were very powerful throughout the land of Canaan, throughout the Transjordan region, it, it just wasn't humanly possible. And of course, you know when you read the story of how it happened in Numbers or in Joshua that you come to see, it. well, it wasn't accomplished by human power or human wisdom. It wasn't Israel's military savvy or strength. It was the supernatural power of their God that brought all this about. Over and over, the text of Joshua 1 through 11 emphasized this point. You remember, the Lord went before them, parted the Jordan River when it was at flood stage so that they could walk over it on dry ground and enter into the land of Canaan. And you remember that in, one of the, in their first battle, the battle against Jericho really wasn't a battle because the Lord just tore down the walls and said, go get them. And then you remember in that great battle against the combined Canaanite armies of the south in chapter 10, how the Lord brought 
giant hailstones from heaven down to crush the enemy army so that more were killed by his hailstones than by the Israelites. And then he literally stopped the sun in the sky so that they could finish the job. So as we survey the results of Israel's conquest of Canaan in chapter 12, all the kings they defeated, and appreciate what an incredible event this was, it should remind us of the power of God. You know, surely Solomon was correct when he said to the Lord in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Now, believer, consider what this means for us. If, if God has the power to bring about this remarkable conquest of Canaan that's described in Joshua 12, what has he done for us as his new covenant people? Well, he's already raised his son Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory. And by that same almighty power, he has raised each one of us who believe in Jesus from our spiritual death and bondage to spiritual life and liberty and has seated us, Paul says in Ephesians 2, with Christ in the heavenly places even now. It's also by his great power that he has protected our faith through all the trials and the tribulations of this life. You still believe and that's by God's power so that he might guarantee that you will persevere to the end and take hold of that salvation that he has promised to you as an eternal inheritance and indeed by the power of god jesus is building his church throughout the world and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it he has bound the strong man and he is plundering his house he is transferring sinners out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love and we know that when the appointed time comes, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, he is going to return to the earth with his heavenly hosts. And as 2 Thessalonians 1 says, he is going to deal out retribution upon the world that has rebelled against him, ultimately, 2 Peter 3, destroying it with fire. And yet at the same time, by his almighty power, he is going to raise us from the dead and gather us to himself in the air in glorified bodies and he is going to make all things new creating a new heavens and a new earth which he will give to us as our eternal homeland where we will enjoy perfect fellowship with him. This, Paul says in Philippians 3, is according to his power to subject all things to himself. You see, the God of Israel, who is also the God of the church, our God, is almighty. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to understand and confess this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, he said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. So as we read Joshua chapter 12, and we reflect upon what 
the Lord did for Israel, it should stimulate and strengthen our confidence in the power of God to accomplish all his holy will. And it should give us a trust that in the midst of everything that's going on in the world, he is able to fulfill every good and wise purpose that he has for us. Maybe this is something that you need to appropriate to your soul afresh today. Whether it's because you're watching the news or whether it's because you're going through some deep waters in your own life. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing is too difficult for him. Well, in conclusion, in this chapter, the author of Joshua, he steps back. He takes stock of the conquest of Canaan. He lists all the kings of Israel that Israel defeated and all the territory that he took from them under the leadership of Moses and Joshua. And as we hear the author recount this remarkable event, may God use it to increase our knowledge of God in both his perfect faithfulness and his almighty power. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this 12th chapter of Joshua. And Lord, as we survey within it this incredible work that you did to give the land of Canaan plus more territory to the people of Israel according to your ancient promise to Abraham. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves. We should at least be in awe of you of both your merciful loyalty to your promise to Abraham, your faithfulness to carry out what you said, and also your almighty power by which you accomplish all your good purposes. Oh God, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might know you more and more in truth. We pray that you take this passage of Scripture and teach us of yourself through it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.